0: Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University in where else but Houston, Texas. With me this week is Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you? This Is it cold? Is it warm? What is it up there, Michael?
1: The last week of January, there's often this phenomenon in Minnesota called the January Thaw where it oh. gets 15 degrees warmer than it is the rest of January and the rest of February. So it's, I think the height of it is 40, Whoa. which I know seems, uh, seems cold in Houston. But here, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's like no-coat weather. That,
0: that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Though when I left this morning, there was frost on my windshield, so we might actually be running neck and neck today. We've had a little bit of a cold snap.
1: Wow. The smog doesn't keep that out?
0: Uh, I don't understand weather. We'll have to ask Dan about that. (laughs) Uh, Also with us chuckling is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Uh, How's the weather where you're at, Nathan?
3: Uh, It's going to get up to 55, so still uh, (laughs)
0: no-coat weather,
3: although everyone from Georgia will say, Oh, you Yankee, you need to put on a coat. The incorrigible Nathan Gilmore. To which, to which I always say, I will if it gets cold.
0: Nice. Oh, I just checked the weather. It's thirty-one degrees in Houston right now. So wow, it's mid-40s
3: here. So so
0: right now, I'm in the coldest place. Well, no, 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 not right
1: now. Yeah, forty-four. The high it's gonna get.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's twenty-two degrees outside,
0: and that's a warm day. Okay. Okay. So slow
1: well. it on down, Groves. Slow it <laughs> do need, on down. Do I,
0: need, do I need to slow my roll? Is that is that what you're playing? We're
1: very defensive about the uh, the cold weather. We don't like it. We don't like to hear other places, especially places in uh, in the south, talk about <laughs> talk about how uh, how cold it is there.
2: <laughs>
1: Actually, we do like it, and then we laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: should
1: have you should have heard the aggravating Minnesotans talk about this blizzard on the East Coast as if. As if nobody on the East Coast had ever seen snow before, the way these Minnesotans <laughs> were talking. Leave them alone. They got two feet. Two and a half feet. If we got that much, I wouldn't be leaving the house.
0: No, it's not the dusting on the on on the loop of Atlanta, you know, a few years ago. And oh, everybody, man. Yeah. I'll, well. I'll, I'll,
3: my, my favorite tweet from the East Coast Blizzard was mm. uh, a certain uh, former NSA employee who's now, you know, a... Uh, well, I mean, seeking sanctuary in various foreign nations, uh, posted a picture of the uh, snow-capped Washington Monument with the caption, Now even Washington is Snowden.
2: Oh. <laughs> oh.
3: I, said, I, I, I I like the guy even more now. <laughs>
0: Boo. <laughs> so, so, so are we now going to get a, a, dad, a dad joke Snowden? <laughs> I, th- I think you might have exhausted him on that one. <laughs>
1: yeah. Our intern once told me that uh I have moved past dad jokes and into grandpa jokes.
0: That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my student yeah, my students regularly make fun of my dad jokes. Anywho, so speaking of dad jokes, um dear listeners, by the time that you hear this episode, I will have had my third kid for something like a week. Um, as we're recording, uh, I plan to take my hi- my wife to the hospital later on today. So, you know, that'll be fun. And as a result, uh, Katie and I have been thinking a lot about babies and baby names, which is the topic of our episode. But before we get into that, is there any network housekeeping that needs doing
3: Uh, No real housekeeping, Uh, just this is another five-episode week, which I always enjoy announcing. Uh, Last week was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As as we are recording, this is a five-episode week. Last (laughs) week was a five-episode week, so uh, listeners, if you want to subscribe to Christian Humanist Profiles, the Christian Humanist Podcast... Book of Nature, Sectarian Review, Christian Feminist Podcast—they all have episodes this week. Uh, the only show on our network that didn't release an episode this week is Pieta Schoolman, and that's because they are pouting until someone actually responds to their end-of-episode questions. At least that's what I heard. Roger Olson <laughs>
2: responded.
3: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Roger Olson has. Uh, I, I, that's I feel a like good I response. I, I feel like I should uh, respond to them so that they can feel better about their project.
1: Mostly, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many of our listeners number one listen to that show, and number two, like, know Chris's old show, the CWC, the radio show. But Sam Mulberry mm-hmm. is back on, mm-hmm. on up he's on Pie to Schoolman this season. So it's, I mean, it's very nice to hear them together again.
0: Yeah, Indie. I was, I was, I was kind of stoked about that. I, I, I had a moment of nostalgia.
1: I think all our shows on this network are different from one another. They all have different vibes. Obviously, they cover different subject yep. matter, but that is the most different. Mm-hmm. That, is the, that is the one that, that is, is the uh, – strangest is not the right word because it makes it sound, uh, you know, metaphysically strange, but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the, the one that is most different from this show.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. All animals are different, but pigs are more different.
1: Fair enough.
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: Not that we're calling Gertz a pig.
0: No. no, 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 no. So, should we transition into our topic? So That's, as to at safely some point avoid, probably, <laughs> take away the shovel. Um, Eventually,
1: so... you know, and it'll probably be the end of a semester. We'll just have an episode that says idle chit chat.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that will end up being somebody's favorite episode.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: But 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 when we publish it, we ought to, you know, publish it with, you know, the lost uh, work of Samuel Beckett. <laughs> 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 See if anyone calls our bluff.
0: Nice. Well, names. Uh, so we've been trying to, you know, come up with baby names and so forth, which we're not revealing because we don't know the gender. So, you know, all that stuff.
1: Could reveal both what you will call it if it's a boy and what you'll call it if it's a girl.
0: You know, we don't do that because it means that we can't change our mind at the last minute. Because people start monogramming things.
1: None <laughs> of our listeners are going to monogram anything for you.
0: Uh, you don't know that. You yeah. I you never know. I, I I've I've never I've learned to not be too careful. Also, some people that I know in like meat space life. <laughs> listen to this.
1: Those people. By the time this episode drops, we'll already know the name of your baby. The only people you would be revealing it to are me and Nathan, and I think we've earned that.
0: Uh, well, let me think about your argument as the, as the, as the uh, episode progresses. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. So I don't know if you guys have named babies lately, but it's really complicated Because of all the kinds of significance that a name can have or a name can create, you know, etymology, personal meaning, because, you know, some guy you knew in kindergarten had that name, cultural meanings, just the sound quality of it. So I guess we can start autobiographically and ask, what do your names mean in these different kinds of ways? Start with you, Michael.
1: Uh I am named after my father uh who goes by Mike I go by Michael of course of course that's a, what a dumb thing to say um the most immediate thing everybody notices about my name is that it's spelled wrong um the truth is M I C H I A L is a spelling for Michael is apparently a celtic spelling or so I've been told I am mm. not Irish as far as I know, uh, as far as anybody in my family can tell, my grandmother just didn't know how to spell it. <laughs> and so it's a it's a name that has now been passed down one generation, and it'll probably stop there, uh, and, and has brought me some degree of grief and fame. Mm. The name Michael, of course, means he who is like God, and um, it, it's the name of the archangel in the Hebrew Bible. I'll let our listeners decide how apt a name that is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll point out about all three of us; none of us go by shortened versions of our first name. And I, I don't know about you guys, but when people do, just like automatically call me Mike, it it uh, it bothers me. Like that's 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 not my name, and, and it feels wrong to be called that. Nathan, you sometimes go by Nate, don't you? I,
3: I do sometimes go by Nate, although in the last several years, almost everyone calls me Nathan.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and you're so fond of calling major philosophers by shortened versions of their name, <laughs> <or> <laughs> <I get to laughs> It's
3: them. true. It's true. And literary figures and, mm-hmm. yeah. you know.
1: <laughs> but it, it's interesting how those names become like like part of you, you know? I mean, obviously. But but to, to the point where shortening people's names when they're not shortened feels weird to me. And I know that I've <laughs> had students who who I call the full version of their name. And, uh, you know, only to find out later they go by some shortened version. And how weird that feels when you start to know them as their full name. Mm -hmm. Of course, then you end up being Diane Chambers. Everybody else calls him Norm, but you always say Norman.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Well, I always tell students to, uh, when I read the role give me the name that they prefer to go by because I don't want to call them something that only their grandma calls them.
1: Well, right, but then you get the students. I don't, maybe you don't get this. Maybe this is just a thing here. But you get students and they're like, either way, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does matter. You don't go by <laughs> by them.
3: And, and see, when on occasion I get a student who says that, I say, well, pick one because you're stuck with it the rest of the time you know me.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I usually just go on a rant about how there's no way that's true. <laughs>
0: What about you, Nathan? Uh, Well,
3: honestly, the the name Nathan, I grew up in central Indiana, and for the 18 years I lived there, I only knew two other people named Nathan. And I noticed that uh, it's a Bible name when I started Christian college, and there were five others, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) even though it was a much smaller place. So uh, Nathan is one of those sort of standard names that people pick if they want to give their kid a Bible name. Uh, it's the Hebrew uh, giving verb. I I don't know if that's significant at all in my case. Uh, my mother is now going to call me when she hears this podcast. Say, what do you mean was it significant? But uh, you give <laughs> a lot. <that's> true. <laughs> um. But um. The, the the name that I that I'd like to talk about as well as Nathan though is my middle name Patrick. My great-grandfather was John Patrick. Uh, he had a son, my my great-uncle named Patrick. My son's middle name is Patrick. So that's definitely one that has been passed around my family. Uh, even though, judging by the spelling of Gilmore, O-U-R, which my students so often get wrong, uh, we seem to be English in our roots, although it, it's hard to tell once you get back into the Kentucky coal mining generations where exactly we came from. So... Uh, I've got I've got two names of of some interest. What have you got, David?
0: Well, my first name, uh, David. Um, David, my uh, my first name was going to be Nathaniel, which is my middle name. Mm-hmm. But my dad had a strong aversion to people calling me Nat, which he was convinced was going to happen. <laughs> um, or I named Nathaniel and Nat grubs sounds like something that you spray plants for
2: <laughs>
0: anyways. So Nathaniel got shifted to, to the middle and David became the front runner for my first name. David is also my mom's youngest brother's name and, uh, when they started uh, considering David as, as, as my name, my uncle was uh, so flattered and excited about that, that uh, he, he promised them that he would start going by his middle name so as to prevent confusion, lest that be a reason for them not to choose that name. Um, but they let him keep his name and they gave me it too. So, you know, it has that family significance. Um, and I found out, you know, when I was, uh, as I was growing up that David was a Bible guy too, which meant, you know, growing up, you get to be, you know, the giant killer, brave little David and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And then you grow up and you find out there are other stories about, uh, Israel's, uh, most famous King. Um, some of which are, uh, less stellar. Anyway, so King David kind of became an encouragement and then a cautionary tale to me um, as I grew up. So, you know, those things are there.
1: We all have Hebrew names. We do. I mean, more
0: or mm-hmm. less. You know, I mean, however, it's, I mean, none of us spell our names in Hebrew, so all, they're all anglicized. <laughs> <to some degree. laughs> right, right. Well, in the, Hebrew,
1: <laughs> the Hebrew version of Nathaniel is A-E-L, isn't that right?
3: Uh, depending on how you transliterate, yeah, I've seen it that way, and I've seen IEL.
1: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But
3: you're not Nathaniel and, and, anyway. No, I'm not Nathaniel, and I'm also not Netanyahu, mm-hmm. which is another variation <laughs> of Nathan. Oh, right. interesting. I thought many yeah.
1: people yeah. had been calling you Netanyahu, and you were just correcting them. Uh
3: o- Only mm-hmm. one Old Testament professor in seminary. Nice. <laughs> it's well, like it's when good. you learn that,
1: that Jesus is the Hebrew version of, or the Greek version of Joshua.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. And, the, and then you realize that all the people who object to, you know, Hispanic family calling their sons Jesus probably have at least four <laughs> cousins.
0: I do remember as a kid feeling a little bit left out because I, I didn't know of any kind of – there there were no Davids that I knew of kind of in pop culture, right? Um, David Bowie? So, I guess you, you uh, probably well, didn't know him. I didn't know David Bowie when I was a kid, right? <laughs> um but uh, I bet you were kind of stoked that there was an awesome, awesome TV show in which there was a car that was constantly saying your name, Michael. Uh,
1: you, I think you, I think you may forget how young I am.
0: Oh, <laughs> I was
1: born in I was born in 1982. I've never seen I've never seen Knight Rider.
0: So, since our names don't seem to have a lot of connection uh, with uh, pop culture that was important to us with our kids, but mainly Bible culture. Uh, that's a good segue for talking about names in the Bible. And the most important one of those would be God's name. So, Nathan, what is that name, or names, and what does the name mean?
3: First of all, in the Old Testament alone, you have an array of names. So you have a number of them built off of the Canaanite loanword El, uh, which seems to be the name of their creator God, based on what we know from the library of Ugarit and other sources. Uh, So there you have God Most High, uh, you have God the Maker, so on and so forth that appear in psalmic literature, in prophetic oracles, all the other places, all sorts of other places. If you go way back in our catalog, uh, you'll discover an episode uh, called, I want to say TLDR, but that's not right. Uh, It (laughs)
0: is,
3: (laughs) it is, um, shoot,
0: E-J-E-D-P?
3: J-E-D-P, thank you, David. I can't believe I couldn't remember that. You're welcome. Uh, you know, Which was a theory that biblical scholars developed that you started out the biblical tradition with different narrative sources, each of which used its own specialized range of divine names. So mm. the plurality of names in the Bible uh, is just one of the raw facts of biblical studies uh so we shouldn't think of one name that said that the, there is a famous naming chapter in the old testament namely exodus 3 mm-hmm. and it's a fascinating little chapter because uh you don't simply get one name for god there either
2: right
3: uh you get a number of puns which is one of the ways that the old testament does its theology uh which which might explain why i gravitated <laughs> to the old testament in seminary Uh, But you get three names that the voice associated with the burning bush speaks to Moses. One of them is, uh, I am the God of your ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So the name of God in a very straightforward sense comes not from a a, a segment of nature, some sort of elementary principle, but it comes from a historical narrative. The second, the second name that God speaks is the one that everyone uh, remembers, uh, which is to say, I am that I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what's interesting about this is that, of course, the oldest manuscripts don't have vowels. Uh, they are simply consonants. So once again, there is some ambiguity built into that chapter so that you could render that as I am that I am, which I believe is the King James rendering. You could render it as being on toss which is how the septuagint renders it and i i know old testament studies people aren't supposed to like the septuagint but i just love it i, I love <laughs> all the ways that it differs from the hebrew text
1: it is wouldn't that have been the bible jesus used i guess he probably would have used one in hebrew
3: yeah the synagogue by that time was re was was reciting the bible in hebrew mm-hmm. but the diaspora jews you know who of course jesus had some contact with would have known the Septuagint so mm-hmm. both of those texts would have been on Jesus's horizon
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, but the third one uh, and and this is the interesting one for me because it comes at the end of the story uh, God says tell the people of Israel I will be with you now in English that doesn't look anything like the Lord But in Hebrew, it's the same consonant cluster that we get in the divine name, which has led some theologians to offer the possibility, and again, remember, we're not talking about precision of translation because that's very difficult when you don't have vowels, Uh, (laughs) but they've offered the possibility of saying, why don't we render the name, I will be what I will be, therefore signifying not a static being, but a, a sort of, possibility as the core characteristic of God. And I will be with you as the core consistent characteristic of God, namely that God is perpetually in relationship with Moses and with the with the people Moses represents. Uh, I really like that. I've used that when I've uh, preached both Exodus and other parts of the Old Testament. And the name, therefore, is, uh, doesn't have meaning, but it has meanings, uh, mm-hmm. and honestly, that is part of the reason why it's such a, a fascinating thing to see God reveal God's names to Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, Ma- Michael, I mean, what, what other kinds of, of God names are you interested in?
1: I'm not sure I have anything to add to that. I mean, you're you're the one who can you're the one who can flesh out these questions.
0: Mm. All right, all right. <laughs> Well, I do think it's worth pointing out the role that the Septuagint's rendering of the the I am that I am, or you know, however we, whatever values you you insult there or insert there, um, <laughs> that that the major doctor Freud, <laughs> that the 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 Septuagint's reading of that as 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 ontos, um, how fruitful that particular reading was in um, patristic and medieval theology. Um, mm in, in ways of seeing, uh, resonances between, uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, between the way, um, the New Testament scriptures talk, uh, particularly about the role of Christ in, in creation and his relationship to, um, the, the very, be, being the, the, uh, the representation of god's character and all of those great uh, hebrews one colossians two things um anyway uh, that that particular translation um kind of got christian theology on a particular tack that uh has 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 deep roots and long branches
1: and it, well, I, I would say it also opens the door to paul Tillich's expression of god is the ground of being
0: right mm-hmm. right which and 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 if you just if you just take that phrase that's something that augustine's not going to disagree with thomas is not going thomas aquinas is not going to disagree with it with that well, phrase which is stated. amusing
3: yeah because uh you know Tillich and michael correct me if i'm wrong here was trying to do uh, sort of a contemporary theology along the lines of Martin Heidegger, yes?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I, that, that's how I read him. The,
3: yeah. the way
1: mm-hmm. Heidegger uh, turns uh, metaphysics into ontology. Mm-hmm. Tillich is in some sense turning theology into ontology.
3: Right, but it's funny because in uh, Heidegger's commentary on uh, Hegel, which I had to read for a grad class, I didn't just pull it off a shelf at a used bookstore <laughs> or anything, Uh but he has a little throwaway line that I think in our grad class, I was the only one amused by it. He said that uh, someday I need to write a, a Christian theology just so that I can show those poor souls that you can do theology without using the word being.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think in, my, um, in my, one of the essays for my comprehensive exam, I go into detail about why I think I, why I think Tillich's subversion of theology into ontology is like an intellectually unserious move. Hmm. The the he's just I, I I read that as him just kind of riding Heideggerian coattails.
2: Hmm.
3: Okay. Uh,
1: as much as I like that image of God as the ground of being, I I think I think Tillich is sacrificing something very serious about about God in doing that.
0: Hmm. Interesting. But probably a
1: subject for another podcast
2: indeed
0: <laughs> well uh moving to a related subject um one of the things that i know about god's name in the bible is that i'm not supposed to be taking it in vain uh, which was actually the subject of my pastor sermon this last sunday so michael what does it mean to not take god's name in vain uh, which you know growing up that that meant that I don't say GD. so
1: <laughs> right and, and again here I think Nathan might be the person to answer this question so I'm gonna take a shot at it and then pass it over to him. Mm. Um, I, I don't think it's primarily about not saying oh my God or or GD or anything like that. I think I, my understanding of it is it has much more to do with invoking God's name, to back up your pro- uh, promises yeah. or uh, perhaps even to, to engage in worship insincerely, whatever sincerity means in the context of worship, or, or otherwise to kind of go through certain motions with invocations of God. Mm-hmm. So in, in other words, I would suspect that GD is actually much less of a problem than so help you God. In, in the American court system, Ooh. like that, that, that to me seems like a much more serious um taking of God's name in vain than than casual blasphemy.
3: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, and and now I've got a name for my third album. Casual
1: blasphemy. <laughs> I, I want to see the cover. <laughs> nice. Just you walking on water? Oh God! <laughs> walking on water across a across mm. to a Seven Eleven. There's there's <laughs> there's your album casual blast. Wow.
0: I mean, I, I find that plausible, Nathan, uh, or not Nathan, Michael, because <laughs> Michael was the one that was talking. Uh,
2: That's right, name
0: Yeah, I, I find that one plausible. That that reading plausible because I take um, Jesus commentary in. Uh, uh in the sermon uh in the the discourse on the mountain Matthew, uh about not swearing at all as uh as commentary on that particular commandment.
1: I would really like a legal scholar and perhaps um Coyle or Alexis Neal could write in and tell us this. How on earth did it become so acceptable in our courtroom or, or in like swearing in ceremonies for politicians? Mm-hmm. To do the I mean that that seems so incredibly against what the Bible says, frankly, about about swearing. Mm-hmm. To to have and, and then like evangelicals get mad if a Muslim politician wants to be sworn in on the Quran. Shouldn't we be <laughs> happy he's being sworn in on the Quran instead of the why would he swear by the Bible?
0: Why would he, I don't want him swearing by a book that <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's not yours, <laughs> right? I had a friend. I had a friend once uh, who said that uh, he doesn't care if people get sworn in on, on a copy of Kantiki. <laughs>
0: that would actually be kind of neat, though. I would really, really wonder what the theology of that person was.
1: <laughs> but anyway, I would really like to know. I would really like to know the, the history of that practice, because that that seems like such a violation. To me, and I've often wondered what I would do in courtroom in a courtroom if I was asked to to swear on a Bible like that. I just I, I don't think I could do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That's interesting. I you know the thing about the "Do not take God's name in vain" is that other than the bit from the Sermon on the Mount that David just referenced, there is very little direct mention of that commandment other than in. Exodus 20 and, and Deuteronomy 4, mm-hmm. or is it Deuteronomy 5? I can't remember. At any rate, Deuteronomy. early Deuteronomy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So what we get is a history of people trying to make sense of it. So mm-hmm. the things that Michael just talked about, uh, the swearing of oaths that are in fact false, uh, the swearing of oaths at all when you get the, you know, when you get people like the Anabaptists taking the New Testament and specifically the Sermon on the Mount very seriously, there's a number of uh, court cases in the 16th and even more in the 17th century where uh, Anabaptists are held in contempt of court because they refuse to swear mm-hmm. in court, uh, which is part of the the legal proceeding in you know a, a modern courtroom.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So uh, other speculations that I've heard is that it has something to do with the fact that in other ancient Near Eastern texts, we have a lot of people uh, using the names of their deities in magical incantations for sorcerous purposes. Uh, people have speculated this might be a, a warning against the use of the name yad Vavhe as a as an ingredient in a magic spell. Again, what's so fascinating about it for me, uh, because, because once again, to, to pick up Michael's favorite word from my recent Profiles interview, uh, I am an incorrigible postmodern. <laughs> this way uh, is that it really is a commandment where it says don't say this, and then it never tells you why you shouldn't say it. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's it, it's glorious fun that way. One other bit of history, and then and then I'll I'll pass it back to you, David. Is that early in the rabbinic era of Judaism, the the practice developed like I just said of saying Adonai whenever you reach those four letters in the Hebrew text mm-hmm. and the reason is precisely because they couldn't agree what it meant to take a name in vain mm-hmm. and what it meant to take God's name with proper gravity so they said let's just not say it at all and not roll the dice
0: right which is really really interesting because it also means that they make the move of declaring whole swaths of divine self-naming as mm-hmm. as not the name that counts.
3: Yeah, yeah. Which is
0: um Which which,
3: which in the Hebrew text I really should note. I mean it, it really doesn't say Hashem Elohu, which would be, you know, in a straightforward sense the name of God. Mm-hmm. It it says, you know, do not use the name Yadhe Vavhe vainly mm-hmm. if you translated it very woodenly. Mm-hmm. So, so
1: we're all okay in the uh in the courtroom then.
3: Well, unless we against. regard, you know, the name to refer to any name, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's why there, there's a certain uh, contemporary uh, Christian radio song that a church I used to attend used to do, feels like every other Sunday, I'm sure it wasn't that often, that would repeat the line, there's no God like Jehovah. I think I counted 27 times, and I, I always thought of the, uh, the commandment not to take the name in vain after about... 18 it's like I, I i can maintain gravity for about 18 repetitions after that i'm saying it in vain I, I ain't even gonna lie
0: yeah
1: you, you know praise contemporary praise music is a frequent whipping boy on this yeah. podcast but I, I i i think you're right i think there's a there's a there's a sense in which quite a bit of that takes god's name in vain
3: so what i used to start doing and this would often earn me a well-deserved punch from my lovely wife is a uh, You know, I would start making up alternate (laughs) lyrics like, There's no God like Jehovah, no car like a Chevy Nova, capital of Delaware is Dova, I once had a dog named Rova.
1: Incorrigible. (laughs) Irrepressible.
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Nathan Gilmore, uh, the most fun man to go to church with. (laughs) I I sometimes,
1: when I'm stuck in services that use those songs, I sometimes... uh substitute God with Baal and see if the meaning of the song changes, and if it doesn't, I figure it's a blasphemous song.
2: <laughs>
0: nice.
1: <laughs> You'd be surprised how often it doesn't change anything.
0: Yeah, well, and especially all those choruses that talk about making the grain grow tall and thundering upon yeah. us with his lo- it's l- lightning just bolts. Like
1: God's power, 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 power. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, and it, you, you talked about, you were talking about the amulets and, you know, using the name and magic. And, I mean, one of the main kind of uh, things that you find in the ancient Near East, you find them in Egypt, you find them in, um, you know, you, fi- you find them in what was, you know, Judea and all the rest of it, is amulets with the Tetragrammaton on them. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, so...
3: And in, you know, third, fourth, you know, which is a, you know, sort of patristic era Egypt, Mm -hmm. uh, we have unearthed a book of Jesus spells Yeah, where you use the name of Jesus to, you know, increase your fertility, to have more babies and to, you know, make your crops grow and jazz like that. So it's, it, 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 it was, it was not a commandment that was unneeded.
0: Holy sons of Sceva, Batman. (laughs) Anyway. Well, what about the human names in the Bible, right? Over the years, I've heard many sermons and Sunday school lessons, and you guys probably have too, in which the etymologies of Bible characters' names were treated as an important part of understanding the stories. So do name meanings matter to you, Nathan, when you interpret a Bible passage? And if it matters, in what ways might they matter?
3: Oh yeah, it definitely matters, uh simply because it was a literary device that was very, very common in ancient literature, not nearly as much so in modern. Mm. Uh so for instance when Avram, the father of many, becomes avra Avraham, uh, the father of many nations, uh that is the result of a blessing that God puts on that man. Mm. Uh when Yaakov, uh, who is, you know, the heel grabber, which is probably euphemistic for grabber of other body parts, um, <laughs> becomes... Ooh. Because, I, I won't tell you what a, a ministry major buddy of mine used to call that character,
2: because <laughs> I,
3: I think we still might have a clean rating, but at any rate... <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, uh, when he becomes Yisrael, the one who struggles with El, again, that's that's the result of a narrative incident. Mm-hmm. Likewise with Yeshua... Yah saves, uh, likewise with um, so many of the, the prophet names, right? Uh, Ezekiel, you know, the strength of El, uh, so on and so forth. So definitely the names are important. A uh, couple of them that are my favorites, uh, which I'll kind of talk about for a moment, and then I want to hear uh, what kinds of Bible name lore Michael has picked up, uh, are the ones where translators, for very good reasons, I'm going to go ahead and say that. Uh, tend to transliterate them instead of translate them. Uh, so, for instance, uh, in the opening verses of Ruth, uh, you've got a, a woman named Naomi uh, who goes and you know marries a man named Elimelech, uh, which is a perfectly respectable name. Uh, god is my king, okay? Uh, or my god reigns, depending on how you render it. But in verse 2 of Ruth chapter 1, she has two sons named Machlon and Kilion. Now, you could very well translate their names, but every English translation I've ever seen transliterates them because uh, her two sons are named Wasting Away and Puny. (laughs) Just take a guess (laughs) what those two sons do in verse 4. Huh. Huh.
1: Why would she name them that? That seems like
0: <laughs> well, they <laughs> k-
3: they kept. I right, take it back. It's verse five. So listeners, <laughs> I, before you write in, I realize it's verse five. So they last three whole verses before they croak.
2: Yeah.
3: Um. And you know, people speculate. You know, I mean, is this simply a fictional story where you've got you know Ben Johnson characters, um, you know, puny and wasting away who in fact die soon. My my sense of things. And again, this is rooted in what anthropology I know from that region and from that period is that odds are this was an oral tradition for many generations uh, before it became a written text. And so, since those characters basically are there to die young uh, and leave Ruth as a widow, uh, you know, it just kind of became customary. You know, of course, Ruth married the sickly one. You know, Orpa married the wasting away one. So let's get on with the story now. They die, okay? <laughs> um, now, obviously, that's speculation on my part. That said, I mean, it's it's the story that I like. Uh, the other one that I, I I really enjoy simply because, first of all, I teach the text every spring, uh, but also it's another one of these lovely examples of something that is, I think, an oral tradition that gets turned into a written text is. There's a certain story in the Old Testament about a man uh, who was a righteous man, a pious man, a wealthy man, uh, and all of a sudden God starts doing hateful things to him. God kills his children. God destroys his property. God strikes him with a wasting sickness. Uh, and listeners, if you're tempted to write in and say, well, no, God allowed him, Satan to do that, uh, go look at chapter 42 when it says, friends and family gathered around him to repair the damage that God had done. Yep. Uh, if you want to disagree with the narrator, you can. I'm just going to go with the Bible. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs>
0: and then he drops the mic.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, uh, we know this character who I've, I've tried to avoid naming as Job, which is a Hebrew participle mean, meaning the one who is hated. Yeah. Now, what Mama is going to name her little boy hated? Uh, the answer is not many, uh, unless you know you don't know much Hebrew and you just want to give them a Bible name, mm-hmm. uh, or if you're a character in a Stephen King story, but that's another story entirely. Uh, but this is another one of those instances where the best explanation that I've got for things is you've got this long-running oral tradition of the story of the hated one, uh, the one to whom God does hateful things, and by the time it becomes a written text he actually simply becomes Job. Hated. Hmm. So, Michael, which Bible names do you think of when you think of Bible names?
1: Well, Hosea's children come to mind. Uh, Hosea, to make a point, I can't remember exactly what he names them. I know Frederick Buechner renders it as like not forgiven because god will never forgive israel for her sins
2: <laughs> yes yes that,
3: that would be Lo ruhama.
1: so like uh you know this is this is commitment from from a prophet he's willing to ruin this poor kid's life <laughs> in order to get his point across like, and, and that of course is, when uh, i hear
3: that name all i can th- think of is pat marita in karate kid 2 <laughs> and i of Noel <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's because i'm an 80s kid i'm sorry <laughs> Well, I, poor Isaiah's kid, al Hashbaz. Yes.
1: Oh. What, what, is that, what does that mean? Uh,
0: swift to the beauty, quick to the spoil. Something like that. Nice. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah and then then there's Adam, right? Which I mm-hmm. believe means man, but also out of the dust.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. Adamah means out of the dust. Adam simply means earth. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So he, he's the earthling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very, very precisely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I, I think is interesting is when characters uh, we, we we cited Hosea and, and and Isaiah as as naming their kids in these symbolic ways, but you you brought up Ruth, um, Nathan, and uh, within the story you have Naomi renaming herself on purpose.
3: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Um, you know, initially she was Naomi, and then after her her sons die. Her, her husband dies and she returns back to you know the land of her birth with nothing she takes to herself the name Mara or weeping or bitterness something like that which mm-hmm. uh, which leaves you know it, it which gives you particular characters in, in some sense taking control over the over the narrative of their life by renaming themselves. Um, wanting their name to tell the story that that they actually feel they've lived, which is which is interesting. Um,
1: when you you get that I think. I mean, Nathan talked about about what? Jacob and Abraham having their names changed. Mm-hmm. You you also get that when people enter certain religious vocations, right? They mm-hmm. they take on new names. That I suspect I don't really know how it works, but I suspect they they take them on because they hope they will emulate the people who had those names
3: right and famously you don't get to choose your own monastic name mm.
1: oh i didn't know your, that. your
3: community that confers famous. it upon you
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I, i'll tell you this i go up to st john's abbey uh a, a few times a year and uh I, a couple times ago i was walking through their cemetery and uh it's it's a really amazing thing to see tombstone after identical tombstone with nothing but a first name on it because these are the you know these are the monks who lived and died at this abbey and they they don't have their old identities anymore mm-hmm. they all, they they are completely subsumed into this vocation
0: right it's kind of cool um when i wanted to throw out one example of of uh bible name exegesis that uh I'm not entirely convinced by, and it's to take the giants that David and his mighty men, uh, fight in, oh, second Samuel. And I think, uh, is it, is it first Chronicles? There's some of them too. Anyway, mm-hmm. Goliath, and then all those various giant brothers, one of whom is six finger and all the rest of it. Um, uh, a, a teacher, uh, a Bible teacher that, uh, was kind of in my family's orbit uh, when I was a kid. Would would talk about those giants and etymologize their names in ways that um, turned them into basically the deadly sins, and then etymologize the <laughs> names, and then etymologize the names of the guys who killed them as corresponding virtues or positive character qualities that are necessary <laughs> for fighting said sins. Uh and Is
1: that sort of allegory typical of fundamentalist exegesis, David?
0: Well, it's fairly typical of medieval exegesis. Oh,
1: that's what, I, that's what I was thinking. It, se- it seems so medieval Catholic.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it, I, I I haven't encountered lots of that. Um, but I do, But that one particularly stuck in my memory, because I was fairly sure that you shouldn't be able to do rigorous hebrew etymologies for philistine names (laughs) (laughs) you know that was just my gut you know as a kid it seemed to stress aren't
1: naming their aren't aren't naming their children (laughs) and the thing is because of i think i know who is doing the exegesis you're talking about Mm. Uh, because of his other commitments he's not going to going to be willing to say that David and Goliath is just a story made up by the Hebrews, so they gave Goliath a a meaningful Hebrew name, right? He, because right. I'm sure he would also claim that that story is the literal truth, and mm-hmm. so it can't be, it can't have these elements that are novelistic.
0: Right, right. Well, it, 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 it was very much the, um, well, the position that you see Augustine taking um, a lot of times in the City of God, where he says these things did happen historically. But God is not only the one inspiring the inscripturated version of the narrative, but is also the one who lies at the back of the historical events themselves. So God is having these people have these names so that they can, you know, for this brief moment, form a moral tableau. Which is, I don't know, maybe God could do that. It just seemed a stretch to me. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't doubt that God could. It's just, would he, right? It, it seems kind of odd that God's like, you know what, ne- you know, my, my people are in this national security emergency and giant guys are trying to kill them, but I want to make sure that the right giant guy writes, fights the right Hebrew so that when they fight, it can mean the Nicomachean ethics, kind of.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. on the other hand, I I think that that allegorizing mm-hmm. of of those stories can be interesting and helpful. Okay. Right. It can it can be it can be a, a theological exercise worth doing. The problem is when you when you say that the allegory is like uh, intrinsic to the text.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. If,
1: if you want to say I'm looking at this and allegorizing it, well, fine. And and then there's there's room to disagree. But when you say mm-hmm. it's it's part of the canonical interpretation of the text, as I suspect your uh, fundamentalist leader was, mm-hmm. um, that that's when it becomes a problem for me because right. I, I, yeah. I I've never understood the evangelical animus toward medieval Catholic allegorical interpretation.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the difference between saying that God is Edmund Spencer. And saying that you are a creative, moral applier of the principles that you see in the text, right? But see, mm. and
1: the problem is that goes against something yep. fundamental to fundamentalism, <laughs> right? Which is that the, the, the meaning of the text is entirely plain and that any child can understand it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so you can't say, well, this is something I'm reading in because then... Then you're going against that that tenet.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: and, and, and see, I would tweak that just a little bit to say that those meanings are inherent in the text, but I, I would take you know as, as sort of my forebear in that respect, Dante's letter to Congrande, where he says that there's always a plurality of meanings mm-hmm. residing in any poetic text.
1: Right, um, but again, that, that's not that's not what the people David is talking about. Oh do. no, no, no! I'm not saying no. they are.
3: I, 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 I'm, I'm saying that this. I, I'm saying that, you know, the the idea that there is one real meaning and then everything else is imposed by the will of the later interpreter, mm-hmm. which I realize I'm, I'm, I'm caricaturing the position you just articulated, Michael, but I, I've heard people say that, largely biblical studies, studies types, uh, and that strikes me as limiting the possibilities of a text mm-hmm. too much.
1: No, and, and I mean I I'm I'm with you on what I would call hermeneutic criticism.
3: Mm-hmm. Right,
1: which is that which is that, that texts are these vast forests and you kind of connect the trees in a in a variety mm-hmm. of ways.
3: Right, right. And I mean and, and honestly this is where, you know, Alistair McIntyre is a good help. Mm-hmm. Danny, that was for you. Um <laughs> namely that you know to understand different ways of reading mm-hmm. uh the best thing you can do is to situate them in narratives right so when a historian tries to reconstruct what an 8th century bc audience would have heard when they heard or isaiah's oracle is a different practice from reading it allegorically because god has given us a new revelation with the in- incarnation of jesus mm-hmm. right so uh, or the incarnation of the son pardon me mm-hmm. in the person of jesus just in case there's any systematics people out there uh, <laughs> I'm sure
1: there are systematics people out there yeah <laughs> uh, so I
3: mean I, I would say that you know you've got a plurality of readings you can judge between them uh, but but I always get a little bit twitchy when people say you know well don't give me those interpretations give me the real reading mm-hmm.
1: and before uh, the uh, before the anti post-structuralist people come after us let me let me point out and Nathan I'm sure I'm sure you agree a plurality of readings does not mean an infinity of re- readings. Yeah. It does not no, mean, no, it does no, not mean no, that no. every reading is equally valid. Mm-hmm.
3: No, 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 no. And, and and folks who posit that aren't paying enough attention to what's going on with post-structuralist, deconstructionist sorts mm-hmm. of boogie-woogies, or they're reading the bad sorts who are, frankly, trying to get tenure by publishing lots of articles, and they say, hey, no one's read it this way before. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, one of the ways that I like that that I kind of came to terms with, um, you know, some of these some of these ideas and kind of framing them in my own head, is to see the Bible as a um, as a living and active text that is not just sort of lying there passively, letting ingenious people do whatever it is they want with it, but is also um, God's instrument and in actively shaping a people who as they are being shaped with the, through their engagement with the text become better and more insightful readers of it indeed
1: so, to, to mention two other chp favorites
0: mm-hmm.
1: milton in areopagitica mm-hmm. says that to burn a book is like burning a man and you could extrapolate that i think into saying that in some sense books are like people. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they, they talk back to you. And, and in fact, Lionel Trilling, and there's another one for Danny, <laughs> Lionel Trilling says in, uh, I think it's called On Teaching Modern Literature, which we're we going to do an episode based on that essay sometime.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a good essay. Uh, he, he,
1: he says that a good book reads you
3: mm-hmm.
1: at yeah. the same time you're reading it. And he says, sometimes I would read a book and uh, I wasn't ready for it I wasn't ready to be read by it And then I came back to it later and it read me yeah. And I, I, I think as Christians we have to say That the, the, the book that is most true of Is the Bible
0: mm-hmm. And that,
1: that every time you return to it, it It should kick you in the head a little bit
0: Yeah.
3: And if it doesn't Then you're not reading it right
0: Well you're, you're, you're not growing Right mm-hmm. you're, you're, you, you, ha- you, aren't, you aren't becoming a Bible person That can converse with it better And in more insightful ways um, but in, in
1: in some sense, all great books do that, to some degree. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of great books, hey hey. Um, I would like to discuss. Uh, well, before we get to the lit, I need we need to get to lit because that's our thing. But I first want to deal with something that I think, the first time I noticed it, I thought it was weird. It's an issue about naming in the English speaking world. But it's not unique to the English-speaking world. I know that there are some other cultures in which this is a common thing. Namely, that frequently our names don't mean anything in the name that we speak. And <laughs> that's actually how our episode started, right? Each of our names comes from Hebrew. We don't speak Hebrew. Um, and the first time it occurred to me that that was odd is when um, I was working at Central College in Kansas. And... I was dealing with a number of Japanese students who knew exactly what their names meant because their names were Japanese words for ordinary things. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I started thinking, you know, that would actually also be true of characters in, in in a text like Beowulf, but it wouldn't be true, I think, of most of the characters in the Canterbury Tales. So, Michael, you're our existentialist. Do those differences in terms of name and what it means and language and things like that, do those differences matter for our perceptions of ourselves and our world and how might they matter if they do? well of course they do okay. i
1: mean i can't imagine it not mattering i okay. i don't know because i wasn't given a name that means anything in english and so mm-hmm. i can't imagine what it must be like to have a name that means some especially something lofty some virtuous name like you you know there's these there's women sometimes who are named things like charity mm-hmm. or faith mm-hmm. and i i would i would think that there's a certain amount of pressure to that and 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 you know, there's a there's a commonplace that if you name your daughter chastity, she's going to become a stripper. I don't know. I don't know how true that is. <laughs> but if it is true, you can understand how it would happen. It would be a pushing back in the other direction. On the other hand, I know a lot of women named Faith who are you know quite faithful, and that 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 is something that that can make sense. You don't get it as much with men's names, do you? Mm-mm. But women's names, aside from those those various virtue names, there's also Ruth. Uh, Which means like mercy, Mm -hmm. uh, although you never hear it, you you normally just hear the opposite, ruthless. Yeah. What what I think we have in English, maybe not instead, because I suspect other languages have it as well, is we get named after people whom our parents admire, Mm -hmm. and and that's another sort of thing to that you have to live up to when you're named after your father, as I am. um, It is impossible not to compare yourself with them. Um, but again, I suspect that's true of all these other languages. They just have this extra dimension of things to live up to.
0: Mm. <laughs> what about you, Nathan? Is that does that seem as weird to you weird to you as it does to me in some ways?
3: It, it is, and and honestly, when I think about it, there are virtue names for men but for whatever reason they get uh, transliterated from their old languages rather than translated mm-hmm. kind of like I was talking about earlier so I mean for instance uh, every Justin you know of course is you know has in the root of his name uh, the Latin word for justice or righteousness uh, you know if you know anyone named you know Andrew or Andre or you know Andres if you know any, Mm-hmm. Uh, Hispanic gentleman, you know there is a you know well I mean manliness yep. uh, is built into there, uh, so
0: it, it's Andrew. interesting.
3: I... <laughs> did I not say Andrew? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah you yeah. said Andrew.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. I got, I got I got caught up on the Andrea Andres. You know.
1: Pierre means stone in
0: French. So if you're if From you're Peter. French and yeah right, yeah. but
1: Peter doesn't doesn't carry that. Pierre right. is actually the word they use for rock in French.
3: Oh, okay. It's one of like
1: <laughs> and, ten words they use.
3: For right, and, and part of it's that comes word. from the fact that modern Spanish, modern French, modern Italian, more modern Portuguese, modern mm-hmm. English are largely derived from both you know Roman imperial Latin and then also from the Christian influence that swept over that empire. So uh, a lot of folks, even if ethnically, they don't have roots in that Roman empire, culturally they do because of the early modern and, and high modern age of imperialism. Uh, so I mean, you get names like that. Now one phenomenon that I found find interesting, and if either of you guys have an answer for this, I, I will be uh, mighty grateful is that you know modern English words and, or modern English names, modern Spanish names, modern French names, like I said, tend not to, although Pierre is an obviously exception, they tend not to translate, these older names like Michael or David or Nathan into modern idioms Mm
2: -hmm.
3: but whenever I read and and I'll have to admit I don't know very many Navajo or Cherokee people Mm -hmm. Uh, but when I read stories and when I see TV shows with uh, Cherokee and Navajo and Sioux and Lakota people uh, their Lakota names get translated into modern English right so Mm -hmm. you get crazy horse you get Henry Standing Bear uh, you get Fences Jacob Nighthorse. <laughs> well, that's Kevin Costner. That 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 that's an episode of its own. But uh,
0: <laughs> please know, you know,
3: do you guys know? I mean, what is the history behind the fact that when we English speakers, you know, talk about Voltaire, we don't say Foxy, right? Um, because it would sound like a Jimi Hendrix song. I, I realize that's the reason there. But when we talk about, you know. Native American military leaders, we talk about Crazy Horse and, 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 and you know, um, shoot, now that Crazy Horse is the only one I think of. Sitting
0: the, Bull. Sitting yep. Bull, thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Do, do you do guys you, have, have any notion of that history?
1: Do you think there's an orientalizing impulse there? That by, by calling them the English translations of their names, we're paradoxically setting them apart from... From English names because it makes them sound so foreign, and so quaint, frankly.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's possible. But why don't we do that with Israelis and Chinese and other folks? Why is only Indians? Because
1: because by the time Americans had a whole lot of contact with Israelis, mm-hmm. uh, the the society was a bit more multicultural. I think uh, that, that's my guess. I don't know.
0: Depending on yeah, the I
1: don't facts. know either. I.
0: Depending on the text, um, if you look in uh, the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds stuff, uh-huh. um, writing about China, you will sometimes encounter, especially female characters, with names like Jade Flower and stuff like that.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That right? that makes sense.
0: So you'll encounter that, but even even when you're talking about um, Native American names, it's not consistent because we still got yeah, we still got Squanto. Pocahontas and Squanto mm-hmm. and Sacagawea. Um, it, and to no, notice, notice uh-huh. those are,
1: those are Native Americans who are, who are friendly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Th- those are Native Americans who help white people, whereas crazy horse sitting bull. Although um,
3: Tecumseh is the, uh, the exception to that rule though.
0: Yeah. 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 Um,
3: so listeners, I, I didn't research this. <laughs> if one of you has, please write in and tell us some of this history because I, the, the, this is a mystery to me, and like David, I'm teaching an overload this semester, so I didn't run it down in show prep
1: yeah it's, it's very interesting it's a, I, I hadn't thought about that before you asked it
0: mm-hmm. well, you'll sometimes see in nineteenth century translations of uh some some translations I've seen of Beowulf you'll see um, translators rendering the names by their by their by their cognates, so you know um. You know, you, you'll you'll have someone named Ash Spear.
1: Ah, okay, you know? okay.
0: Or what's Beowulf's name
1: mean, David? Beowulf?
0: <laughs> uh, well, it de- it really depends on who you ask. Um, mm-hmm. The one I was taught is Wolf of the Bees, so a for bear. hmm Um, but but there's debate on that one. So I mean, Bear Man. <laughs> you might call him. Um, or Winnie the Pooh. If you were because, trying to make fun of him. Because of the honey reference. Right. Um, anyway, it, it's I, I wonder whether it's kind of a noble, uh, sort, sort of a noble savage thing that naming, being named after things in nature um, is is what's being evoked there so that when you see kind of frankly romantic 19th century translators of germanic texts doing making the same moves with Uh their nobly savage ancestors whether it's whether it's a similar kind of move
1: well it's distancing but it's also cool right i mean (laughs) crazy horse is an awesome name
0: yeah yeah (laughs) it's an awesome name well we're going long man
1: I thought this episode would be like 28
0: minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, you know, we should we should do just a little bit of lit just to say we tag that base. But, you know, hey, let's do a couple representative things and then round things out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we know that names are often used in literature to communicate ideas about characters, about their personalities, about the roles they play. So, um I'd like to just kind of go around the circle and name a couple of favorite examples. So, Nathan?
3: Well, I'm not going to name a particular character, but I'm going to name a playwright, namely Ben Johnson. I actually nodded to him earlier. Hmm. Uh, And Johnson, uh, in my mind, is one of the great masters of the hilarious character name. Um, The... (laughs) You know, in, in just Bartle Me Fair, just to just to pick an example, uh, and also Fran Teague's favorite Ben Johnson, so that makes it important to me. I
1: thought you were saying Bartle Me Fair, like it was some sort of expression I've never heard before.
3: Do you think it might be a pun? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs>
1: uh, but you get, uh,
3: you know, names like Dame Purecraft, Zeal of the Land Busy, Adam Overdue, uh, Madam Overdue, uh, you know, and all of these sorts of things uh, pretty much predict what these characters are going to be. These are definitely uh, you know, variations of the comedy of humors. The people named overdue uh, are not going to be showing moderation. Uh, the dame Purecraft uh, might seem pure, but you're going to find out it's only craft. Uh, you know, it, it, it really is one of those things. Uh, Win little Wit is another one. Again, if you predict that maybe this might be a character with little along the ways of wit, you are correct. <laughs> um, and so, uh, in addition to just being a, a hilarious play in its own right because you get a debate between a Puritan and a sock puppet, which the Puritan loses, um, <laughs> you know, you also get these... <laughs> no, I'm not even making that up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to do a spoiler just because I don't think our listeners who haven't already read this play are going to, you know, fault me for spoiling it. But uh, a puritan busts in on a puppet show, uh, saying that the puppet is the chief of sinners because he is dressed as a woman and then leads and thus leads people to exchange their rightful God-given uh, sex for something else. And by means of a a fairly tight syllogism, the puppet demonstrates that, in fact, a puppet cannot be a woman because it has nothing below the waist, and therefore the Puritan's argument is invalid.
1: the Puritan cries.
3: (laughs) No, he just kind of skulks off because that's what happens in these plays. But uh, I do love Ben Johnson for so many reasons. Among those reasons, the glorious name. Michael, what do you got?
1: I'm going to go the other direction. Uh, I do not like heavily allegorical names in in fiction. Uh, I I think I've made my distaste for Pilgrim's Progress (laughs) clear in the past, and one of the things that bothers me is the absolute hammer Mm. uh, they hit you over the head with in in Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, the sloth of despair, things like that. I like (laughs) names that are meaningful, but also real names. So, Mm. the one I'm going to point to is uh, Harry Angstrom from John Updike's Rabbit series. Um, angstrom contains the word angst so you 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 have a sense that harry is going to be uh nervous about death and human existence and also angstrom is a unit of measurement albeit a very very small one so it suggests that he's uh that he is a uh you know a speck in the universe and when your epigraph is from pascal that makes sense meanwhile harry Gives himself or is given um, in in the universe of the story the nickname Rabbit, which uh, suggests both his <clears throat> propensity for breeding and uh, his uh, <laughs> his his running away from from things that distress him. <laughs> so I like that uh, much more than I like uh, names that are that are very very obvious. Because uh, the, the critics had to point that one out to me. I hadn't I hadn't realized it when I when I first read Rabbit Run.
0: Hmm. It becomes an extra level that you appreciate when you get it.
1: Right, right. It, then, it, then it really does work on both a literal and an allegorical level.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
1: Whereas, uh, what is the woman's name? Lady Overdue? <laughs> yes. She, that, that does not work on a literal level because no one has named that. Although, isn't Katie, <laughs> Lady Overdue right now, David?
2: Oh, goodness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, right uh, today, as of today, she's Lady Due.
1: Okay, gotcha. There yeah. you go.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, actually, Michael, to, to follow up on that, uh, I still remember the day when you told me that Roger is named Roger for a reason in Roger's version.
1: Did he's named after Roger Chillingworth?
3: Yeah, and all of a sudden I said, oh my gosh, how did I miss that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, That's okay. I was writing about Roger's version. I've I've read that book five times. I was mm-hmm. writing about Roger's version, and I was reading some critics, and uh, I had never considered that Roger's wife might be pregnant at the end of that book, which is apparently what everybody thinks.
3: How fascinating.
1: In my own book, I make a rather strident argument against it.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: <laughs> so everybody has that to look forward to when they when everybody listening to this buys my book
0: because sure strident is an adjective that everyone looks for in their literary <laughs> criticism
1: everybody wants to read a hundred dollar book about John Updike right
0: <laughs> yeah everyone Amazon top 10 um, I, I like the uh, the etymology leading to things but um, your your last example Michael is fun to me because that one's it, the with the Rogers version the the name is making a difference not because of what the name means but because it's it's one text resonating off another text
1: right yeah and that that book is a retelling of the scarlet letter
0: but that you know that makes an interesting that makes an interesting difference um for me i wanted to just say this is not a you know a major canonical work but uh it's a harking back to uh the chesterton episode that we did with uh with todd peddler um we read the reread the story, "The Hammer of God," in which uh, a lot of the story is built around the rivalry of two brothers. One is named Norman, and the other is named Wilfred. And I can hard, I you know, I I can't help imagining, uh, help seeing those two names as. Very obviously, setting us up for the idea of a deadly rivalry between the brothers, because one has a good old English Anglo-Saxon name, and the other one is named Norman, and Norman is, haha, all about conquest. Um, anyway, I and you know Chesterton will do that kind of thing sometimes, uh, as well, and that's uh, I, I read that one as a historical reference, but I, I think that sort of thing's neat. Well, we should round things out. Um, Oh, my last one. Do we have any particular names that we want to pitch for an approved Christian humanist baby name list? I assume (laughs) Zeal of the Land Busy is going to go on there.
1: Michael is a beautiful name for a boy or a girl. (laughs) No, I'll tell you what I like. I like, uh, it's an old Southern practice, which is that you name the firstborn son the mother's maiden name. So, in our case, the, mm. the we're not going to have children, I don't think. But the uh, the child would be named Reynolds Farmer, which is a cool enough name that I, uh, you know, I, it almost makes me want to have children just to <laughs> on Reynolds Farmer.
0: Yeah, it's <laughs> tempting. It's tempting. Uh, well, one of mine would be named Norman in that case, so...
1: Oh, that would work. Norman Grubbs. He sounds he sounds like a professor of Portuguese or something. <laughs>
0: that might be one reason why that doesn't happen.
1: Wouldn't yours, Nathan, yours would be Bird Gilmore?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That, that is, a, uh, that is a, that, a, that's
0: a... That's a jazz trombonist right there. <laughs> See, I was thinking it sounded like a Faulkner character.
1: Yeah, I was oh, thinking... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone who owned, like, a combination bait shop hardware store. <laughs>
0: fantastic
3: oh oh, man I don't don't know if I can follow that Michael so uh, (laughs) I'll just say that I'm always pleased uh, when I get bible names that are off the beaten track I have a a cousin named Jared I've always appreciated that one of the obscure names of the Old Testament he was
1: named after the character from Labyrinth
3: (laughs) no um you know i you know and and i'll admit you know names like deborah and you know names that don't immediately come up when you think of biblical names uh uh, i have a soft spot for um you know that that, and obviously you know there's there's a, a famous figure who recently you know made this name either famous or infamous but uh you know, this is the sort of thing that amuses me because church people don't realize that Bible names are Bible names. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, you know, a, a certain Illinois senator ran for president in 2008 and everyone said, oh, he's got a Muslim name, Barack. <laughs> <laughs> and I, Oops. I, I always told people, I mean, you know, to, don't tell anyone. <laughs> but once we had a president named Abraham,
0: too. do am going be fair, more people
1: read Genesis than Judges.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, a lot of people just don't make it to judges, mainly because of numbers. I think.
3: <laughs> oh, I'd say Leviticus. Oh. <laughs> I can read
0: numbers.
3: It. It's got stories. It's got talking donkeys. Um, but so you know, my my preference is for the uh, off the beaten path biblical names. What do you got, David?
0: I like li- I like uh, I like literary references. Um, you know I, I have a na- I have a daughter named Arden and a son named Baron. You know, which is a Tolkien reference. So, um, Grubses tend to go for lit references, because um, for uh, f- for us, it means connecting a child and ho- to to an author, and you know, hopefully that that would that, that would lead to an interest and a love, um, you know, and that we kind of see it as a gift in that way. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, those we like. Uh, one thing that we do, you know, that, 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 that we like is to um, definitely pay attention to the way the first name sounds with the last name. Right. Um, Grubs really cannot support a lot of names. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just just to be honest, we can't name a daughter Violet because Violet Grubs sounds like something that your <laughs> roses get. <laughs> Right. Farmer,
1: you know, farmer has the same problem.
0: Right. I mean, you can't name your children after any plants, right?
1: I would be amiss here, remiss, remiss, if I didn't mention that I have a friend named Walker Plank, whose middle name <laughs> whose middle name is Dean, which means his name is Walker D. Plank.
0: <laughs> that is phenomenal.
1: He swears his mother did it on purpose.
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> That is fantastic. <laughs> any, any things we want to tell people to avoid in terms of baby names?
3: I mean, generally speaking, I'm, I'm allergic to trendy names. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the various iterations of a consonant and then Aiden. And I know I probably just alienated a third of our listeners. <laughs> but, uh,
2: yeah.
3: I, I get so many of those in my classes these days that, you know, I, I just always think, you know... go go for the Bible names. You know, my kids are named Micah and Miriam. There's still a lot of names after that.
1: For heaven's sake, don't spell your child's name ridiculously or he'll live with it for the rest of his life. (laughs) I know wherever I speak.
3: Well, and, and Michael just alienated another segment. (laughs)
1: Look, let me tell you the one I find most vulgar, and I don't know why this is true, a- and this is not a comment on anybody who actually has this name, but the name Courtney is occasionally spelled K-O-R-T-N-E-Y, and, like, that is that is a <laughs> gaping wound to me. I don't know what that is, but for whatever reason, that spelling is, is like, physically repulsive to me.
0: <laughs> um...
3: I I, I I love when Michael makes me seem polite by comparison. None, See, none my, of my, my
0: wife's, yeah,
3: none of my, my wife's name is
0: friends not
1: misspelled phonetically.
0: Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. that's true. That's true.
1: None of your wife's what? I'm sorry, I cut you off. Um,
0: none of my uh, wife's friends listen to this. So, um, and again, this is this is no this is no hatred, um, you know, but uh, she was telling me that in this particular you know kind of, mommy's group that she had. Uh, been part of, that there were, I think, three separate little boys whose names were Jackson with an X.
2: <laughs> Ooh. Ooh.
0: <laughs> they all decided Ooh. to be different the same way. <sighs> That's that, that, to me, is the peril of, of deciding that you're going to improv on the spelling to make them stand out, because how many other people had that same idea? <laughs>
1: well, I can tell you there are very few M-I-C-H-I-A-Ls mm-hmm they yeah. exist but there are very few of them see and my name it seems to be limited to me and my father because if you google if you google it you will find many things i do and then like my dad's internet reviews of engineering software
0: fantastic <laughs> <laughs> see i think i, I think yours looks kind of cool because to me it looks like an it looks like a spelling of michael from another language like Czech or something <laughs>
1: Well, and the only problem with it is nobody can pronounce it.
0: And, oh, and like, yeah. any
1: you go to, like, a, a hospital or a government organization, they always, you know, I think this might be misspelled. No, it's not misspelled. It's just not <laughs> way I spell it. <laughs> I, I tell you, I, I don't mind that name nearly as much as Farmer. I, I I, really, really hate my last name.
0: That's a good last name. Mm.
1: I used to get made fun of her in elementary school. I remember the day my classmates discovered that Laura Ingalls Wilder had a book called uh, Farmer Boy, <laughs> and that was uh, that was the end of that was the end of my life.
0: Fantastic. Well, you didn't walk through life being uh, being harangued at every mealtime with "Hey, let's go get some grub."
1: <sighs> oh, well, fair enough. I like the name Grubs though. It, it's a uh, it's it's a uh, it's an earthy name.
0: Yeah. Is that... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so is farmer.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's true. But I just mean the way it sounds. Gilmore is a cool name. It's like uh, the guy from Pink Floyd.
3: Indeed. Yeah.
1: Um. Well, David, are you ready to reveal the name of your child?
0: Uh, I'll do. I'll do middle names.
1: <sighs> you were such a pain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well. Boy, we like the middle name, uh, middle name, uh, Gregory. Um, again, for literary historical reasons. Um, girl, uh, we decided to go with, uh, middle name is, uh, Beatrice, which is about a third Dante and about two thirds much ado.
1: Are you not going to pronounce it Beatrice?
0: No, no, I'm not. <laughs> if if it's a girl she she has that option to adopt that pronunciation if she really really wants to but otherwise I, I, I don't want to burden a child who is not Italian with that
1: <laughs> well I'm sure Grubbs will post whatever his third child's actual name is on Facebook
0: yeah and, you know, doing this so late in the game, we, we there won't be time for people to give suggestions. It will, it will already be a, 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 a fait accompli by the time we get there. Well, that's all we've got time for, gentlemen. And we're pushing up against our, our limits. But what have we got going on next week?
1: I'm going to take a listener suggestion. Our super fan, Chen Boulay, wants us to do an episode about Arthur Miller's All My Sons. From your mouth to God's ears, <laughs> or,
2: uh,
1: that's what we're doing next week. So, uh, there is not an online version of that as far as I can see, folks, so if, mm. you're going to, if you want to read it, you're going to have to go to a library or right. a book store.
3: And and just about any public library is going to have a volume of Arthur Miller plays, so it shouldn't be too hard to find.
1: It's quite short. It's like 60 pages. So
0: Cool. Well, all your hosts are going to be doing All My Sons. So there you go. Um that's that's next week and this is the end of this week. If you have any comments you want to make about this episode, questions, did we insult your name? Uh <laughs> do you have um wonderful naming advice that you want to pass along to others? You can send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. You can also post in the comments section to the show notes. Our website is christianhumanist.org for that. In the meanwhile, be listening for other Christian Humanist Radio Network podcasts, and I wish you all grand weeks. Christ, uh, Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filipic, and who's the editor for our show at the moment?
1: Amberly Copeland, our intern.
0: Excellent. Amberly Copeland is our audio editor. So now, I, David Grubbs, will leave you with great advice from Martin Luther on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer to let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.